Um, I'm going to read from Acts 10, 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. God gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So I'm excited just to share with you from this passage, especially right after hearing that incredible testimony from Ethan and Gabby, in particular Ethan, and the lengths that God will go to and the depths that he'll go to to meet us where we are and to bring us to a saving knowledge of his son is incredible, isn't it? And so if you have a testimony, and you do have a testimony, we want to encourage you, if you'd like to share that testimony, see me or one of the other pastors after the service, and we'll make it possible to put your testimony together so you can also be encouraged to see what God has done in your life so that we as the body might be edified and built up because of your testimony. So it's awesome to see uh, the testimony of the people here at Cornerstone and we're going to be looking at a pretty incredible testimony this evening as we look at the Roman centurion here in this passage, Cornelius. So believe it or not, this is one of the most important passages of Scripture that we read in the entire Bible. Really, it is. And now I do say that a little bit for dramatic effect because obviously the whole Bible is essential but this really is a very important and pivotal story in Scripture. As you will see, this is more than just a story that we take little notice of and keep reading without pausing to consider the importance of exactly what is happening in this passage. It is one of those stories that you could very easily in your devotions read and not really think about how important it is, but it is incredibly important. And as I got the opportunity to read this passage and study, the more excited I became at just how vital this passage is. It's so vital, in fact, that it takes up two whole chapters in the book of Luke. Luke dedicates two chapters. Now, obviously, it's before chapters and verses were assigned to Scripture, but it takes up a huge portion of Luke, and it's repeated twice. Luke thinks it's so important that he repeats this story twice, almost back to back. It's the longest narrative Luke records in either his gospel account or in the book of Acts, and it really is an amazing story. I'm going to convince you of that. I'm not going to convince you of that. The Holy Spirit will convince you of that as we look at his word together, but it really is an amazing testimony and an amazing story. At the most basic level, this is the story of the very first Gentile who converted to Christianity. Now, that should be exciting for you and I because we are Gentiles. And this is the story of the very first Gentile conversion, at least that we know of, that converted to the faith. 
However, there is much more happening than meets the eye in this passage, as you could often assume when we read Scripture. There's always more happening behind the scenes, right? It's like the tip of the iceberg. And so we're going to just barely scratch the surface of this passage because there is so much happening here, and it is so incredible. I love God's Word. I just do. I love God's Word, the opportunity that we have to hear from God. Can I tell you, if you want to hear God speak, read His Word out loud. Because God has spoken to us, and He's spoken to us through His Word, and it is so incredible. Let's consider for a second who Luke is actually writing to as he pens the books of Luke and Acts, his gospel account, and here Acts. He's writing as a Gentile to Theophilus, who is a Gentile. It's as if Luke is saying to the reader, listen up, because here is where you and I come into the story. So obviously this kind of piqued my interest because as a Gentile, I want to know where I fit into the story. So I want to encourage you with me that as we look at this passage, listen up, because this is where you and I come into the story. This is where we enter into the scene. And it's so exciting to see how God had planned this from before the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the world were laid. And we'll look at that in a moment. I get too excited. You're going to have to forgive me. But it's just so good. It's so good. So first, let me begin by introducing to you Cornelius. So we're able to gather from the text that he is a Roman centurion, right? We can see that. It says it right there. He's a Roman centurion. Now, it's worth noting that the two times that we read about or encounter a centurion in the Bible, both of those times, these are considered to be men of great faith, which is pretty surprising considering that Rome was persecuting Israel, right? And yet, here are these two times that we see these centurions, they're actually men of faith. You can read about another account of a centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Now, as a centurion from the Italian cohort, we don't have to do too much digging before we realize that he's a leader. Cornelius is a leader, and he's a good leader. He worked his way up through the ranks, and he oversees about 100 men. That's where the name centurion comes from. 100 men, 60 centurions make up the entire cohort, the Italian cohort. So he would be the equivalent in our modern day and age of an army captain. And in this particular instance, he would be considered a non-commissioned officer of the army reserves serving in Caesarea, or Caesarea, which was built by Herod and named after Caesar in his honor. It was an incredible city. It was a beautiful city that was built for Caesar. And here we get to read about this man who is in the army reserves and who serves at Caesarea. What's so interesting about Cornelius, though, is that this passage calls Cornelius a God-fearer. He fears God along with his whole household. Now, this detail is significant because it actually distinguishes Cornelius from being a proselyte, right? He wasn't a full convert to Judaism, 
Now, this actually wasn't all that uncommon. You see, the Romans didn't have a problem with accepting the gods of other people. They would just simply add that god to their pantheon of gods. We've heard of the pantheon, right? It's just all of the gods of all of the people that Rome conquered. They just kind of consolidated them into one place, and Rome had no problem just adding all of the gods to this pantheon of gods they served. Cornelius, however, rejected this idea, and he devoted himself to the monotheistic religion of the Jews. And he served the one true God of Israel. Unfortunately, though, as a Gentile, Cornelius would have been barred from the temple. His access to God would have been limited, which is why it is so significant and incredible that an angel from the Lord would appear to him and say that your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In this kind of encounter, the angel's language is full of just sacrificial wording communicating to Cornelius that God accepted his sacrifice and heard his prayers. Could you imagine, after composing himself, how amazing for Cornelius it must have been to understand that as a Gentile, his prayers were heard by God? It's not only unthinkable, it's impossible. And yet God hears his prayer. Now it's really important for us to consider and to understand that Cornelius was not saved by his good works, right? He was a good man. He, he led his home well, right? He was a good leader. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He made the right decisions in life. He was a good man. He prayed. He gave alms to the poor. But his good works did not save him. It's not because of his morality that God answered his prayer, but it's that his good works came from a sincere faith in God. We read in Hebrews 11:6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists, and he rewards those who seek him. Cornelius believes in God, and in faith he prays and he gives alms to the poor. Thus, God is about, uh, is about to reward Cornelius with the gift of salvation through his son. You see, I'm going to make a point that is kind of a hard point to make, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of take this position, and if you disagree with me, I'm okay with that. We can talk about it after, because I struggled and I wrestled with this all week, and I worked through it, but I'm making the case that Cornelius has yet to receive salvation up until this moment. He's considered to be a God-fearer. He worships God. His whole household worships God. He prays to God. He gives alms to the poor. He's known in Jerusalem. He's that prominent. And even though he's an incredible man of God, up until this point, he's actually unsaved. At least that's what I'm considering as we look at this passage, and I, I think you can, you'll be able to see that too as we read further. So I know that this presents a problem for some of us, and I must admit initially it did for me too, and I will explain, 
But before we get there, I want to remind us of the significance of what exactly is happening in this passage. You see, from the very beginning of time, this was always God's plan. This was always God's plan. God always intended to save people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. God always planned to do that. It was never God's intention for salvation to only be for a select group of elite people. You see, Israel twisted the doctrine of election into the doctrine of favoritism. Now, i got to be careful, okay, because next week Pastor Tim is going to look at Peter's side of this story, and I don't want to steal thunder from him, so I'm not going to get into that too much. I don't want to steal material from him, so I'll refrain. But I mention this because I believe that if not, we're not careful, you and I run the same risk of twisting the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. The evidence of that for me is our comfortability with not sharing our faith with the world around us. If we realized what we had in Christ, and how incredible it is that God made himself known to us and saved us, and if we realized that we did nothing to deserve it, we wouldn't be able to contain the good news. We would be sharing our faith with the world around us constantly, just sharing our faith because we realize that we've been chosen, and if I can be chosen, then anybody can be chosen. So for me, the evidence of of, of maybe our twisting of the doctrine of election to one of favoritism is found in our unwillingness to share our faith with the world around us. If we go back to the promise that God made Abraham, we find in Genesis 12, verse 3, it says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was always God's intention to save through Abraham the nations of the world. We can see the same idea in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. If you know anything about Pastor Tim, he loves the word all because you know what it means, right? It means all. Everyone. That he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. It wasn't that Israel was unique or better than the other nations. In fact, Deuteronomy 7.7 says that it was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. What made Israel special was the fact that God chose them. And if he chose Israel, the least of all the nations, he could choose anybody he wanted from any nation. Additionally, and more personally, if he can choose you or me, then he can choose anyone he wants without reservation, even a Roman centurion, even your coworker, even your family member that you can't stand to see at the holidays, right? God can choose any, if he chose you, what's so special about you? I'm not trying to be rude. What's so special about me? That if God saw it fit to choose me, man, he can choose anybody he wants. Amen? So the first thing I want to look at together is God's sovereign choice. So with this whole idea in mind, I want to get back to my earlier point. And here I want to highlight God's sovereign choice. We see in this passage God's choosing power over 
Cornelius. We can't escape the sovereignty of God in salvation. Do you believe that? We can't escape the sovereignty of God in the act of salvation. Scripture is clear about this. In Ephesians 1.4 it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world were laid. God chose Cornelius before the foundations of the world. God, through special revelation, is sovereignly orchestrating the events surrounding Cornelius' life to save him. However, as a God-fearer alone, not having heard the gospel, Cornelius remains unsaved. Here's where I feel really comfortable making kind of this point. Later, in Acts eleven fourteen, it clarifies this by saying, He, being Peter, will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. So up until this moment, he isn't saved. Earlier in Acts 4.12, we heard Peter say, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Additionally, Romans 10.13 says, For everyone, everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why is this significant? Unless people hear the gospel and respond with belief in Jesus Christ, they can't be saved. Unless people hear the good news about Jesus and respond with faith in him, they can't be saved. That's a big deal. That's important. If that's true, that's a really big deal. We can't, we can't allow ourselves to get tripped up thinking things like, what about people who never heard of Jesus? Can they be saved? What about people living on remote islands in the middle of nowhere? Can people like that be saved by their good works, similar to Cornelius? You see, if ever there was a candidate for salvation in this manner, it would have been Cornelius. Yet in his current state, Cornelius stands condemned. You can go back to Romans 1 and 2, and you can realize that all men are without excuse. They need to hear Jesus and put their faith in him to believe and to be saved. This kind of questioning, right? Questioning, can people who've never heard Jesus, can they, can, can they be saved? This kind of questioning actually tempts us to believe that God will allow people who he's chosen to slip through the cracks. Or what's worse is to think that God wanted some to be saved, but he was unable to save them or even unwilling. However, track with me here, by having an accurate understanding of God's sovereign choice, we can be confident and assured that he will make it possible for all who respond to salvation to hear the gospel. He orchestrated the events of Cornelius' life so that he would be saved. He orchestrated the events of your life so that you would be saved. What should blow our minds is realizing that God chose us before the foundations of the world to be 
God chose us to be saved before the foundations of the world. So we must allow our understanding of God's sovereignty to grow beyond our understanding. Is that fair? So watching this story unfold teaches us to be confident of God's sovereign choice. However, there's always that, right? There's always the but, right? However, the primary mode by which God makes salvation available to unbelievers is you and I, his church, which is where I want to talk to you and I about our responsibility. You see, not only is God sovereign, but we are responsible. We're responsible. Upon closer attention to detail, we realize the angel that appeared to Cornelius didn't share the gospel with him, but instructed Cornelius to send men to Joppa to bring Peter to him so that he might share a message by which he and his household might be saved. Don't you find it a bit odd and a little bit inefficient that Cornelius had to wait in this manner? I mean, what if Peter never made it? What if something tragic happened during their travels? Once again, we must be reminded and remind ourselves of God's sovereign choice. That was never going to happen. Peter was always going to make it. Cornelius was always going to respond. And here we're faced, though, with our responsibility in sharing the gospel Listen to this. This says it so much better than I ever could. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. To be saved, you must respond through faith in Jesus Christ, and God's preferred method of transportation for the gospel is you and I, his church. Amen? So wait, you're telling me that God sovereignly chooses those who he will save, and yet somehow it's our responsibility to share the gospel? Yep. I don't understand it either. <laughs> God sovereignly works through the obedience of his spirit-filled saints. How incredible is that? That God sovereignly works through our willing obedience to him. I don't know how God does it, but he does. We must remind ourselves of this over and over and over John MacArthur says divine election and human responsibility is the clear teaching of Scripture. You see, while we struggle to harmonize them, there is no conflict in the mind of God. So I started by introducing you to Cornelius. But now let me remind you of what God was doing in Peter's story while preparing Cornelius for this divine appointment. The story leaves off if we read back a few verses, with Peter staying in Joppa. Well, how did Peter find himself there? Going back, we discover that as Peter was traveling, it actually says this, this blows my mind, as Peter was traveling here and there, 
just kind of going around. As he was traveling here and there, he finds himself in Lydda, healing a man who was paralyzed for eight years named Aeneas. While at Lydda, messengers came from Joppa informing Peter that Tabitha, or Dorcas, how's that for a name? I had, to, I had to make sure I got that in there at some point. A disciple, right? Tabitha, a disciple, tragically passed away, and they asked Peter to please come without delay. Upon closer inspection, we can see God is slowly drawing Peter out from Jerusalem into Gentile country. He's working on Peter's heart. He's preparing Peter for something unprecedented, something they never saw coming. You see, Peter, with the keys to the kingdom, was there in Samaria when he saw how they received the gospel. And now Peter is about to see the first Gentile come to know Christ. Through his obedience, we looked. It, when, when it, what looked like Peter just going about here and there, we discover that God was actually directing his steps so that he would land in Joppa and stay at Simon the Tanner's house, which was also a sign that God was softening Peter's heart because as a Jew, he would never want to be around that much death, right? It would have made him unclean, but he's just kind of loosening up a little bit and God's working on his heart. Interestingly, Peter wasn't the only person in Joppa who found themselves on a mission from God to take the message of repentance to the Gentile world. This blew my mind. 700 years earlier, Jonah was also in Joppa boarding a ship for Tarshish, attempting to escape the sovereignty of God. How did that work out for him? So how would Peter respond now when faced with the same problem? How would Peter respond when Gentile messengers came to him on a mission inquiring of the gospel? For that, we'll have to wait till next week. <laughs> However, what we learn from this story is that we cannot escape God's sovereignty. Likewise, we can't escape our responsibility. Amen? Particularly, the responsibility that you and I have to share the gospel. There is this beautiful relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility as God's sovereignty gives us the confidence that as we, like Peter, move throughout life, here and there, we're actually being led by the Spirit. Meaning we don't need to fret over every move we make because we can just take responsibility of our own lives. Or, as my wife so lovingly puts it, you don't need to overthink it. In addition, we can use God's sovereignty as an excuse to get out of sharing the gospel because after all, isn't he the one who chooses those who he will save? We are reminded from this passage, though, in this story, that God's preferred method of transportation for the spread of the gospel is his church. We mustn't twist the doctrine of God's election to one of favoritism and exclude people through fear or ignorance. We must remind ourselves that God chooses us, and he chose us because we were among the least of these. And if God can choose us, he can choose anyone he wants. Amen? So to summarize with this, we move forward through life, taking responsibility for ourselves, knowing that God is sovereignly directing our steps to share the gospel everywhere we go. We go taking it to the end of the earth because we don't know 
who God might save. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. God, it's so good. Lord, we can just go to your word and we can find everything that we need. God, I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you for choosing us before the foundations of the world were laid. But God, I must admit, if you chose me, God, you can choose anybody you want. And Lord, the way that you'll do that is through your church, boldly and courageously sharing their faith. God, I pray that we would be emboldened and reminded tonight of your sovereign rule over our lives. And I pray that it would give us the confidence to step out, Lord, in faith, to trust that you're leading us so that people can know about Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. God, we're so thankful for your salvation. I pray that we would be so excited about it. God, that we couldn't help but share it with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.